Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we find ourselves in God's providence in Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. Go ahead and turn there. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, if you're new to our church, my name is Chad Wiles. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here, and it's my privilege to get to preach the word today. Uh, Sam gave up his, his pulpit every once in a while to let me in here. I appreciate it. I'm excited to get to do it, although we look forward to having uh, Pastor Sam back walking through the word next week. Um, also, just by way of reminder, we also serve as uh, Director of Counseling Education at the Nehemiah Project, uh, which serves as a counseling ministry here for the field. And so just want to put that out there. If anyone new to our church is looking for counseling, we'd love to serve you in that way as well. So we're going to be in Luke 22, 21 through 30. Let's go ahead and read that, and then we'll jump in. It says this, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which which of them it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I want to uh, remind you as well for your own time of study, the parallel passages that uh, also give this account are Matthew 26, 21 through 24, Mark 14, 18 through 21, and John 13, 21 through 26. And now today's uh, passage that we're in comes right on the heels of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper that Pastor Sam preached on two weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. But just to give us some recap and help us with the context of where we're at, I just want to remind you we're in the upper room. Jesus is with his 12 disciples. It's on Thursday evening of Passion Week. They were just hours away from Jesus being arrested, one day away from Christ being crucified, and Jesus has established with them the transition and the fulfillment of the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. We have just seen this. He has just said this to him before he gives this warning or this proclamation of the betrayer. And just to give you some recap of the overview of what Sam already taught us, It's a reminder that Jesus is the lamb that the Old Testament pointed pointed us to. That's the reason why he is instituting the Lord's Supper. Jesus fulfills the moral law, and because of his righteousness, does away with the ceremonial law. We no longer celebrate the Passover as established in the law, but now we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of the new covenant established in Christ. The sacrifice of the Messiah as a lamb was the sovereign plan of God. This was not an accident. This was not um, catching Jesus off guard. This was orchestrated by God as his plan before creation. Acts 2, verse 23 reminds us, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. His sovereign plan and purposes are being revealed in this section of Scripture more and more. It's kind of a culmination of what's been happening all throughout the Old Testament. We see Jesus fulfilling what he had come to do. And that's why I entitled today's passage, or today's sermon, The Sovereign Plan, or sorry, Man's Prideful Response to God's Sovereign Will. Man's Prideful Response to God's Sovereign Will. And the first thing that we see in our passage today is that the sovereign plan for the betrayer is revealed. The sovereign plan for the betrayer is revealed. 
where Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. But behold, this verbiage here is Jesus pronouncing something shocking to the disciples. This is revealing something to them. At this moment, Jesus is displaying his sovereign character. Because this would have been very shocking to the disciples. Because of the great care that they took in keeping the location secret. If you remember, uh, if you just go a little bit before in Luke 22, when they were going to celebrate the Passover, Jesus gives this very uh, cryptic way about them finding the upper room, right? It says, go there and find a man carrying a jar. Follow him into the house that he enters. And then you go to the, to the master of the house and ask him for a room. And it will be given to you. He will provide the upper room. Jesus took this care because he already knew that Judas had already betrayed him. He knew that he had made a deal with the chief priests and the officers. And they were looking for an opportunity to arrest him. But it wasn't time yet. And Jesus does this. He also understood that Satan had entered Judas, and that Judas was an instrument of Satan. We saw this in the early portions of this chapter. Judas was the plan from the beginning. This proclamation of Jesus here was not one that caught Jesus off guard, but it was one that caught the disciples off guard. They couldn't believe it. We'll see that in a moment as we look at their reaction to it, but what I want to show you here is that this Judas, this betrayer, was always the plan. And this really points us to the showdown that had begun even back in Genesis 3.15. When God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity means direct opposition. This sets up this war between two kingdoms. This war that had started ever since Satan fell from heaven. And Judas represents this offspring of Satan. Your offspring. Right? The seed of the woman, her offspring, and your offspring. He shall bruise your head. I mean crush you, defeat you, and you shall bruise his heel that we see played out on the cross. Satan had sought to destroy everything that God had created from the beginning. Satan sees himself as better than God. Satan wants to overthrow God. Satan wants the world to worship himself as God. Isaiah 14, 12 through, through 14 re reveals this when speaking of Satan. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan's greatest sin was pride. And pride is the seed of every sin. It's to make myself like God. That's who Satan is. And pride is so blinding. In his pride, he sought to overthrow God since the time he fell. And if you just think about that for a moment, he saw himself as better than God, yet he couldn't resist God throwing him out of heaven. Interesting. He seeks to, over, seeks to overthrow God and destroy everything he created, but he can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. Pride is the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is marked by pride. And those who are a part of that kingdom is marked by pride as well. And Satan has his moment here. He's entered Judas. He has his moment. He's picked his, his man, if you will. The showdown of Genesis 3.15 is happening. And we have to understand, just so that we can understand what's happening here, that the war between two kingdoms, there's only two. The kingdom of God, where God rules and reigns and Christ is king. And those that are part of that kingdom are the ones who have faith in Christ and believe in him and have put their hope in Christ alone. And there's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness, ruled by Satan, marked by pride. 
And all of us find ourselves in one or two places. We're either in the kingdom of God because of Christ, or by default, we're in the kingdom of the world. But Jesus' statement in verse 21 here is a fulfillment of another prophecy that we see in Psalm 41.9, where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That imagery of someone lifting their heel is in Jewish writing and culture was to betray, to deceive, to go against. And this prophecy is made even more clear in John's account. When we look at John 13, 21 through 26, he says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table and at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus, and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, this is John here, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This has been prophesied from the beginning. Jesus is playing out the sovereign plan and will of God right here. But Judas, in his prideful blindness, thinks that he operates freely on his own accord. But no one operates freely. We're either a slave to the world or we're a slave to Christ through faith. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul really points this out. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, or were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the nature of sin, and all of us were born with this sinful nature. No one operates freely. Without true faith in Christ, without God opening our eyes and giving us saving faith through Jesus Christ, we are slaves to this world. Judas was acting as a functional atheist here. He had been with Christ. He had witnessed all the miracles. He had every bit of information to know Jesus was the Messiah, but Judas did not believe in him, and he was not the Christ he was looking for. And belief in Christ is not a knowledge issue. It's a moral issue. Romans 1, 18-23, go ahead and turn there with me. It's not going to come up on your screen. <coughs> But Paul makes this point very clear for us. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of morality. I'll give you a second to get there. Romans 1, 18 through um, 23. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For, in his, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see here, Paul points out that in our sin and our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. It does not mean the truth does not exist. It does not mean it's not revealed. It does not mean that we cannot see it. But in our sinful hearts, we suppress it. We ignore it. We seek other gods. We seek idols. We want to put ourselves in the place as God, following the prince of the power of the air, just like our father Satan, if that's who we are. And Judas was this man. No one knew more 
about who Christ was than his 12 disciples. And Judas was there for all the miracles, for all the teachings. He watched him raise Lazarus from the dead, calm the storms, provide for 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He had seen it over and over and over and over and over again. But he suppressed the truth. This was not the Christ that he wanted. Judas was serving his own idolatry, and he was a slave to his sin. And this made Judas the perfect candidate for Satan to enter. He was the perfect one. He was in the inner circle. And even, even more, we see here that Judas is in the upper room eating with the Savior. In Jewish culture, eating with someone symbolized peace, friendship, loyalty, security. And Judas was betraying Christ in the most intimate of ways, making his sin all the more egregious, all the more deserving of condemnation. This makes Judas's betrayal despicable, heinous, and it makes him the perfect one for Satan to use to bring about the death of Christ, although Satan in his blind pride doesn't understand what he's doing. He's leading all the way up to his own death. <laughs> but in verse 22, we're reminded, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So as we see the betrayer revealed, we see the plan unraveling, we see the shock to the disciples, because this intimate setting, how could anyone betray them? Everyone we hear, we, everyone who's here, we know we're, we're all friends. We've been together from the beginning. Who could, be, who could this be? They're so put off that they, even though Jesus makes it clear it is Judas, they still don't put it together that it's Judas because that couldn't be it. In John's account, if you go and read that, they even think that, well, he must be going to buy some more supplies. I mean, he's the, he's the money guy, which was his downfall. That was his idolatry was money. He sells Jesus for the price of a slave, which really reveals a lot about Judas' heart. But Jesus makes it clear that there's nothing that you can do to stop my sovereign plan. God is sovereign and he achieves his sovereign redemptive plan despite the efforts of evil in this world. That is our hope. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 reminds us, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And Jesus is displaying that in this moment. God displays his character against the backdrop of evil, his righteousness, his holiness, his power, his strength. Evil will never and has never triumphed over God and his sovereign purposes. But maybe the most amazing characteristic of God that we see played out in this moment is his love. We see God's love displayed in this passage that we have today. We see his character proclaimed in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, God is patient and slow to anger toward those who are wicked. We often have that question, how does God allow evil in this world? The real question should be, why doesn't God destroy the world? Wouldn't he be just in doing so? Why would he save any of us? Doesn't your sin deserve death and condemnation? But God is slow to anger. Even in this time with Judas, even in his betrayal, even after he does all of this, couldn't he have turned and repented? Would God not have forgiven him? That was not Judas's desire. He didn't repent because he had no belief in Christ, but he could have. And we know Christ would have forgiven. 
And we are at the apex of the demonstration of God's love towards the wicked by Christ laying down his life for those who deserve wrath. And Judas is the instrument to bring about God's amazing love. In this moment of betrayal, it's the very vehicle by which God's going to use so that we could all be saved. But he also says, in verse 22, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This leads us to point number two. The one who pridefully rejects God is condemned. The one who pridefully rejects God is condemned. This proclamation of a woe. Woe means damned, cursed, consigned to hell. This is a reminder to us of the apparent paradox of God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man. That in one breath, we see that this is all God's sovereign plan. This has been his plan from the beginning. God is the one orchestrating all this for his redemptive plan, yet he holds Judas responsible. And I say this as an apparent paradox because we look at it from our finite perspective. We cannot seem to reconcile this truth, therefore often we want to reject it. We cannot fully comprehend the infinite mind and wisdom of God. Human reason rejects the divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And in order to make sense of it, we tend to emphasize one or the other. We may put too much emphasis on human responsibility, or we put too much emphasis on God's sovereignty and say, I don't need to do anything. It's all going to happen anyway. I can just do whatever I want. Neither are true. <clears throat> However, it is by faith that we accept the truth that God is sovereign and nothing happens outside of his control and his plans. And at the same time, God is just to hold humans responsible for their sin. It is right to think that this is a mystery. But it's a mystery that we must trust God with and not try to explain away in our own pride. It's in faith that we understand that He is the Creator. He is the one all-wise and all-knowing. If you really think about it, how arrogant of us to try to make sense of such a mystery instead of taking God at His word. You and I can't see past the moment. You don't even know what's going to happen in the next ten minutes. You can't Keep yourself alive. We need sleep. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Who are we to judge God on who he is and what he says to be true? Who are we to question the creator? And because we can't make sense of it, we try to reject it. And we look for reasons to. And that's because of our pride. And we have to repent of that. We have to trust that God is holy. We have to trust that he is the one who's created all things. We have to understand that we were not there when he created the world or the fabrics of time or the universe or everything, all the laws, and he operates outside of those laws. We want the resurrection to be true because it serves us, but we don't want his sovereignty to be true. You have to take God at his word in faith, all of it or none of it. You cannot pick and choose. And so here we see that God rightly displays his sovereignty. Jesus displays his sovereign plan. He rightly says that the Son of Man is going to go as he is determined. Judas's plan will not thwart him. And Judas will be condemned for it. And he will be punished because of his betrayal. But in this moment of, de of declaring the betrayal, i got to keep moving here. We could probably do this for a couple hours. Y'all good for that? <laughs> There's so many things happening here. <clears throat> but with the disciples' response, we see the sin of pride blinds the believer into seeking personal glory. That's point number three. The sin of pride blinds the believer into seeking personal glory. When the betrayer is revealed, the disciples were troubled. Rightly so. And they begin to question their, themselves. 
Because they understood their own weaknesses. They understood their own sinful hearts. And so because they'd taken such care to get to this upper room, there's no way that anyone outside of this could be betraying them. They automatically begin to wonder, is it me? Is it you? Is it me? Did I do this? And it's interesting, like in that same moment, as they begin to question one another, which of them who was going to do this, it immediately goes to the dispute about who's the greatest. And notice this. No one stopped to care for Jesus. He just said, someone's going to betray me. And they immediately said, is it me? Is it you? Well, I'm greater than you. No one says, hey, man, that's, that really sucks. <laughs> that's terrible. Are you okay? <laughs> no one. And this is not, uh, I don't bring this out as just a, a thought, but it's not an oversight. Because it reveals their pride, their self-focus. We sin against God every day. Here we see in the disciples' display that they were focused on themselves. What they were going to do, what, what they were going to do or not do, or who was better or who was not better. No one was focused on Christ here, not fully, and we do that too. Every day we walk around thinking about ourselves. We tend to be the hero of our own stories, and we're often tempted to make God's plans and His Word all about us, when His Word is about Him and His glory, and we're a part of His story. And their response to their own weakness was pride. Specifically, self-righteousness. And we, and we can relate to this because we often try to make our own sin better by trying to cover it up. I think this is why this argument breaks out here. I think there's a couple reasons, really, um, that we'll get to in a moment. But because of Jesus revealing this, a dispute uh, happens. And this is not a, a nice little conversation. The original word here was Philo, philonia, which means to quarrel, contention. This is an argument. This broke out into a full-blown argument. And this was a familiar, long-running, selfish argument the disciples have had over the years, over and over again. A few places we've seen this in Scripture, Matthew 18, 1 through 3. It says, At the time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put, him, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So even there we see, who's the greatest? Matthew 18, Matthew 20, 20 through 21. We see it didn't work for them to ask themselves, so James and John decided to send their mom. Which is, that's shameful. <laughs> would, you, would you like to be this written down about you? Like I sent my mommy to ask Jesus. But then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, kneeling before him and asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say to these two sons of mine, or say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. There was a constant argument about who is greatest, a constant desire to have position. And I think there's two reasons for this argument that we've seen throughout the Gospels. The first reason is a misunderstanding of the Davidic covenant and the coming kingdom. They had a misunderstanding of the Davidic covenant. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, where Nathan sp speaks to David, Nathan the prophet. And he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. This is why it was important that Christ came from the line of David. That's why we see in in Matthew and Luke, the genealogies that show the link to Jesus being a part of the line of David. 
Because this is a prophecy here that God will establish his kingdom. He will establish an earthly throne. And there will be a physical king, Christ. And Jesus is going to be that king. The eschatology of the disciples for the end was correct. There will be an earthly kingdom. But they had failed to understand that now is not the time for that earthly kingdom to be established. A bigger issue must be dealt with first, the issue of sin. The future will come, but right now we see the suffering needed to take place starting with Christ's death on the cross to defeat sin and death to fulfill Genesis 3.15. That had to happen first. Sin was the bigger issue. The war between two kingdoms, the spiritual war, was a bigger war than an earthly establishment of a throne. That had to be defeated first. And the disciples missed this. Because they were pridefully focused on their ambition and position in the earthly kingdom. And this was not just the disciples' problem. This was a Jewish issue. They, they had remembered the promises of the Old Testament, the, the establishment establishment with Abraham of a people and and with Moses into the and Joshua into the promised land where God sets up his earthly people and his kingdom and of course they sin and get thrown out of the promised land and and with David and then Jesus was going to be the one who fully fulfills this idea and so they were looking for Jesus to be the king that overthrows Rome that reestablishes an earthly kingdom that gives them peace and prosperity in the land that was not Jesus' purpose. Not at this time. He is going to establish peace. But the peace that we need in our hearts, the reality that we need our sin forgiven, this is what Jesus had came to do, but they had missed that, and they were focused on this influence. They wanted to rule. We know this because if you look down at our passage, in this argument, Jesus rebukes them, and his rebuke helps us see what they were quarreling about. Because he says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So we know that they desired this position. They'd either been saying this or Jesus knows their hearts. Either way, he's calling out the real issue of their heart here. They wanted to be the ones who ruled. They wanted influence and honor. They wanted to be benefactors. This word means a people of influence. The Greek word was often used as a title of honor for prominent public leaders, and many of them got their, ish, their position of prominence not by um, honest means because they wanted position. They wanted authority to lord over others, to lord over people. And Jesus warns them to not be like that. That is not how those in my kingdom are going to act. That is not who we are. But Jesus is so patient and loving with his disciples, rebuking them, showing them the error of their pride, in the midst of being betrayed, knowing that the cross is looming, knowing what he's about to do for mankind, he takes the time to teach his disciples, takes his time to teach to their hearts, to rebuke and correct their thinking. They still didn't see it, though, and they wouldn't. Not yet. They will, but not in the upper room. And undoubtedly, some of their hope was misplaced. We know that. And that's why their faith will be shaken by the cross. That's not our passage today, so I'll just leave that for another time. But the cross will challenge and shake their faith in Christ. I think the second reason for this argument also was an argument of holiness. Sam in his sermon did a great job pointing out the ceremonial washing that was at the Passover. And... They misunderstood the lesson that Jesus was teaching them when he washed their feet, when he does this in this way. John 13, 3-11 shows us this account that we don't see here in Luke. But in John 13, we see that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter says, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all are clean. They had this desire to be holy, to be righteous. They had just had this moment with Jesus. And so I think part of why this argument breaks out is they're, they're wondering who's the most righteous, who's more clean, who's more holy. They only, not only had desire for ambition and power, but they had a desire to be righteous and holy. They were seeking holiness within themselves, within their own ability to be righteous. Remember, they're Jews. The ceremonial law, the ceremonial washings were part of their upbringing, part of their history. It was often a temptation. We see this fully blown in the Pharisees and the scribes and those who would seek self-righteousness pridefully. And they had some of this going on. And when Jesus reveals the betrayer, I think it stirred up with them an insecurity. It caused a prideful insecurity to overcompensate by arguing about who's more righteous and more holy. Because they felt the conviction and the guilt of their sin. And they had missed the point, what Jesus was trying to teach them, even this account here in John, that it's Christ alone who makes one clean. They didn't understand it. He was right when he said that to Peter. And Peter, in his, I think genuinely, in his exuberance, was like, well, then wash my whole body then. Let's do this thing. And uh, Jesus is like, you don't get what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> I've... What I am doing is sufficient for your cleansing. It's, this water is not what cleans you. It's me. What I'm going to go do on the cross is what cleanses us. It's faith in me alone that cleanses you. It's my righteousness that you need that I impute upon you in faith. That's what cleanses us. Not the ceremonial washing. Remember, he's doing away with the ceremonial law because he's going to complete the sacrifice needed for the moral law. We no longer need those things. But I think in their insecurity, they sought to be self-righteous. And I think we do the same thing. I think we can learn from the disciples here. How often when you feel guilt for your sin, rightfully so, we try to overcompensate or cover it up by our religious action. Well, I go to church every Sunday, I read my Bible every day, I pray all the time, so I'm, I must be good. And none of us are good. Christ makes us good. That we are to confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You are not made righteous because of your actions. You are made righteous because of faith in Christ alone. And your actions display your worship. We worship God through our actions, but they are not the means that make us righteous. And Jesus is trying to teach the disciples this here, rebuking them in this time. And he goes on to reveal to them who will inherit the kingdom of God. Point number four is those who inherit God's kingdom are marked by humility. Those who inherit God's kingdom are marked by humility. All through Jesus' ministry, he taught that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the world. Those who are great in God's kingdom are marked by humility. Jesus gives two examples in his passage here about greatness in his kingdom. He says, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. He points out children, the youngest, and he points out servants. And this is on purpose. In Jewish society, the youngest were the least to be honored. They're the last to be honored. Honor among people in the Jewish culture was associated with age. The older you are, the more honor you deserved in their minds. And constantly Jesus kept pointing to children. If you have faith like one of these. And here he points them back to be like the youngest. To be humble. To be meek. To not see yourself as better than anyone else. To not seek honor. 
but to serve others, which points us to the second part, as a servant. And within this part here, it's very interesting how Jesus handles this. <clears throat> because as he, he points them to, the, to one who serves, he, he poses a question to them that really has to put them on their knees. He says, For who is greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? It seemed like a rhetorical question, right? Of course. In this culture and society, if you were at the table and you're being served, you're, you're the one who's honored. You're the one who's better. The servant's there to serve you. They're lower than you, right? And then he hits them with this. But I'm among you as the one who serves. You ever have that moment where you say something really dumb and sinful and you get called out in front of everybody and your face feels flush and your pit in your stomach starts to hit? I think this is happening to the disciples right here because think of the context. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're looking for position. They're looking for places of honor. They want to be self-righteous. And Jesus just had washed their feet. Do you understand the significance of that? Washing one's feet was reserved for the lowest slave. The worst of the worst. The one who would be seen as a dog. And Jesus had just done that. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And then he challenges them with that question. Yeah, the one at the table, right? But I'm the Christ. I'm your leader. I'm Lord. And I just washed your feet throwing their whole worldview upside down. And the lesson that he's teaching them here is that leaders in God's kingdom are to have an attitude of a slave and seek to serve, not to be served. This is completely countercultural to their culture and ours as well. We often seek places of honor. We often want to rise to the ranks of business or whatever. And Jesus challenges those in his kingdom to be servants, to emulate him. Paul points this out uh, really well in, to the letter, his letter to the Philippian church. In Philippians 2, 1 through 11, Paul says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our example. He went to the point of death on a cross, displaying his great love. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. That's who we are to be if we're in God's kingdom. We're to be marked by humility. But even in this rebuke, God still reminds him of his grace towards his children, those who are in his kingdom. Point number five, and we'll close on this one. Jesus reminds the disciples of the coming kingdom. Jesus reminds the disciples of the coming kingdom. Despite all their sin and pride, the disciples had remained faithful and would remain faithful ultimately to the end. They were not perfect. They were constantly knuckleheads. But they had faith in Christ. And they stood with Him in His trials. And Jesus tells them, You are those who stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There will be an earthly kingdom. Christ is going to return, and we are in that time of waiting and anticipation for that day. And there will be an earthly kingdom that these twelve, or eleven, he picks another one in Acts, but they will sit and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. They will have the special honor of being his inner council. They will sit at his table. They will eat with him. And they will judge and rule with him as their reward. And they would be the apostles that build the church and proclaim the gospel of Christ's resurrection. They would face great trial and persecution along the journey. And they would all faithfully persevere to the end. And because of that, they receive a great privilege and reward. God's physical kingdom is coming. Christ's return on the day of the Lord is displayed in Zechariah 14, Revelation 21 through 22, and in Luke 21, 5 through 38, that Mike did a great job um, expositing to us. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it about the end times and what's coming. I'm not going to take the time to do all that right now um, because I'm out of time. But... <clears throat> There will be an end time. There will be a coming kingdom. The day of judgment is coming. And so I want to close with what Jesus is doing here is both a promise to his disciples and it serves as a warning. Jesus' proclamation to the end and the reward that his disciples would have serves as both a promise and a warning to us. The first is the promise. Those who have faith in Christ and persevere to the end will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a promise. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the promise to those who have faith in Christ. And our faith in Christ is displayed through endurance, through perseverance. You want to know if you're truly a believer? Make it to the end. Run the race. Stay faithful to the Lord. Because it's those who will inherit the kingdom of God. But number two is the warning. It's an implication of what he's saying. Those who reject Christ will not inherit the kingdom, but will perish. Those who reject Christ will not inherit the kingdom, but will perish. We see this in the example of Judas. John three thirty six. Reminds us that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who do, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I love how that's worded because it points us to what belief is. Jesus says, those who love me obey me. Whoever believes in the Son, obeys his commands, will have eternal life. But whoever does not obey shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. This idea of death is the idea of separation. It's not a ceasing to exist. It's existing forever separated from God. You will exist in a place called hell, paying for your own sin, incurring the wrath of God forever. That's what death is, separation. And what life is, is being reconciled to God through Christ. That's why he says you're a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. You get a new heart. You're restored, reconciled through faith in Christ. And he imputes his righteousness upon you, giving you life, making you a son or a daughter. Restoring you to his family through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's life. And eternally we spend it with God forever in heaven, those who have life. 
And so I implore you today with this truth. If you're here today and you have faith in Christ, endure. Run the race with endurance. Set your mind on Christ. Because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's our example. There are struggles in this life. You will face trials outside of yourself and you will be tempted in your own sin. Don't give up. Fight. Have faith. Renew your mind in the truth. Wage war against sin. As Ephesians 6 tells us, put on the full armor of God. Don't stop. But if you're here today and you do not have a relationship with Christ, I implore you to listen to what's being said in the Word. Heed the warning. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You need life. And that life only comes through faith in God through Christ. There is no other way. Do not suppress the truth of the gospel. You know it's true. Don't hide from it. Don't suppress it. Don't try to be your own God. It will not lead to life, but only death. I implore you to repent. Put your faith in Christ so that you may have life. You may enter into the kingdom. You may be a son or a daughter of God. Don't hear this today and walk away. Don't be like what we see in the example of Judas, who saw Christ clearly, who heard his words taught, who knew his miracles, and still rejected him because he was not the God he wanted. Don't be that, I implore you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your grace. We're so thankful for the truth of your sovereignty, how no amount of evil, no amount of sin, including our own, could stop your redemptive plan, that you went willingly to the cross to pay the penalty and the price so that we may know you and have faith, so we may be saved made clean and made holy, made righteous because of your righteousness. God, we thank you for that. And God, we often reject you, and I know there's people here today who have rejected you, but they're here today because of your sovereignty. Nothing happens on accident, so Lord, I pray for those who do not have a relationship with you, that today would be the day that it begins, that you would open their eyes to the truth that they would repent and run to you and humble themselves before you, knowing that you promised to draw near to those who draw near to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.